Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The splendor of the Rocky Mountains in Western Canada attracts millions of visitors every year from all over the world. They come for the majestic mountain views and turquoise glacial lakes. It's what first brought Horse Stewin to Canada in the 70s. From that moment on, the mountains kept calling his name. Decades later, he returned with his family for a vacation, and their lives would never be the same. And I heard a loud noise. In the beginning, I thought it was like an, a tire who exploded. And uh, I saw my dad just like hanging and bleeding hard. It happened in this you know, split second, and then it was chaos. It was kind of a one in a million shot. And I don't know what the, the thinking was that could lead someone to, um, to do that. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today, on Crime Beat, the story of a chance encounter and a single bullet that would change one German family's life forever. This is Against All Odds. In the summer of 2018, the Stewin family arrived from Germany for a three-week vacation in Alberta. Daniel was 22 at the time. His father had fallen in love with Canada decades earlier, and as a fan of Western-style riding, he was excited to show his family the country he fell in love with. So my dad had the chance to go out there every day horse riding. He went out for hours, and the rest of the family, yeah, we went shopping or stuff like this, but back then he was every day on a horse somewhere in Alberta, and yeah, was enjoying his time, yeah. My girlfriend, who was with me, or with us, uh, she never been to Canada before. And then we were like making plans and we said, maybe it's nice for her to see the Rocky Mountains because she never been here. So we went out for camping. For several days, they stayed at Tunnel Mountain Campground with access to hiking and biking trails and where they could take in the stunning views of Banff and the surrounding peaks. On their final morning, they stopped at the Three Sisters Resort near Canmore. It's at the base of the Rocky Mountains, and it's world famous for its beauty. Then, the family headed east towards Calgary. My dad's plan was to go to Calgary because he wants to see an, another Western store and maybe buying some boots and stuff like this, which you can get over here. And uh, yeah, we went to the Three Sisters the famous mountains over there, because my dad wanted to see. He remembered it from back then in the 70s. They decided to avoid the major highway from the mountains to Calgary. And instead, they took the more winding, narrow, scenic route in their rented SUV. Horst was behind the wheel. Beside him was his son, Daniel. His girlfriend was behind him, and his mom sat behind Horst. My dad, he wanted to, to go and drive back home on Canadian Highway 1A. He said, I want to drive, I want to see like the nature, 
and uh, maybe stop every now and then and see what's like he wants to see some ranches just watching as a tourist and uh, yeah we drove off two times after a few stops the family got back onto the highway and a few short minutes later a car drove by and then i heard a loud noise in the beginning i thought it was like in a tire who explode and uh, i saw my dad just like hanging and bleeding hard and we already got off the road. Daniel said at first he had no idea what had happened. So we run down a few of the trees and then I think it was the third tree or something. We stopped. All the airbags and stuff, they went off. He assumed something must have gone wrong with the rented SUV. In the confusion, he took charge of the situation. Then I grabbed my dad's phone. I called the 911 and luckily the navigation system still was running so i could explain them where we're at we're on canadian highway 1a driving east near more lane we went off the road i sent my mom and my girlfriend to the highway back so they will stand there and wait for them meanwhile his father was badly injured he was laying on the ground and then they told me like this stuff Everybody does when you're on an emergency call, like find where the blood comes from, stop the bleeding, make him a comfortable position. So I got some pillows out of the car, put them under his head. And then we were figuring out and I said, I can't find any like wounds. Only at his head, there's a small one, but it's already like it was closed again. The family was in a remote location. So the 911 operator told Daniel to talk to his father and try to keep him awake until help could arrive. So I talked to him and about the holidays and that we go back and next I guess it was two days left so that we will fly back and everything's fine and we go to the Western stars and stuff like this. Yeah, and after a while, the first police officer came. So that was where my job was ending at that point. And then my mom was standing behind her and she was screaming like we got shot. And then I came up from my knees, looked at the driver's side window and I saw like, you know, how it looks like when the glass is crashed from uh, gunfire. So it's like crashed in circles from the little hole. And I was like, what the hell has happened to us? That was the first time I realized that something bad happened. In a foreign country, in a rural area on the edge of the Rocky Mountains, Horst Stewen had been shot in the head. Is it a terroristic act? Is the guy shooting more people? Will they help over there first and don't come over to us? So it was kind of like a helpless situation. But after a while, all of the cars came, like firefighters, ambulances, police officers. And then I realized something like wasn't normal because most of the police officers, they were like ammunitioned with uh, big weapons. And I was like, in Germany, you don't walk around with big weapons normally, even not the police officers. Yeah, and then they go in, helped him, the ambulance was there and they took him off. It took quite a while and the first police officers, they start like interviewing us, like my mom, my girlfriend, me. Daniel said when police arrived, they had a lot of questions. The entire situation made no sense. Why would they be targeted? 
Yeah, we had no answer for that question as well. Like they were asking us, and did you went into a fight or stuff like this? And we just said no. We just went on the road, and somebody drove by, and my dad got shot. So we have no answer for that. And then I got into the ambulance, and they said, "Can you talk to your dad? Can you find out if he's talking German?" But because the the people who who were in the ambulance weren't German, so they asked me to translate and stuff. And They asked me if I do understand any words. I said, no, <laughs> this is either German than English. It's nothing. It's, I don't understand what he's saying. And they said, yeah, look at this. And then they showed me the, the position. He said, he got shot in the head. So he lost his speech. And up to now, we don't know what will happen, uh, but we're fighting for his life. In the meantime, Daniel tried to protect his mother from the seriousness of his father's injuries for as long as possible. So I went off the ambulance car and my mom was standing right in front of me and asking what has happened. And I said, everything's fine, mom. You don't need to worry. He will be back again soon. Because I didn't know what to tell my mom. She was standing right in front of me crying. And I was like, I don't want her to like realize at this point what happened. So I want her to be calm. So I kind of lied to her, but for a good thing, you know? The family rushed to the hospital to be with Horst, where it was clear this had already become a high-profile case. As I remember when we came to the hospital first, there were like a lot of TV screens and there was like our car on all of the screens and in the news and it was like kind of a strange situation. Doctors said Horst needed emergency surgery. He got shot like it's behind his ear on the left side. With his father still in critical condition, Daniel was faced with the difficult decision to leave his side and return to Germany to take care of the family business. The family worried customers would hear his father, the head of the company, had been shot. And Daniel wanted to be in Germany to help deal with the news. When I left Canada in 2018, and it was one day after that happened, uh, I had to say goodbye. And I asked the doctors at the hospital in, in Foothills in Calgary, what do you mean with saying goodbye? And the doctor told me, if I were you, I would say goodbye as I, would, as I don't know if I will see him ever again alive. In one of Canada's largest hospitals, Doctors told Daniel to say a final farewell. Everybody left the room, the, the room where he was in. And yeah, I said goodbye, like, don't worry, Dad, I will make it. Keep fighting and we will see each other in Germany. Don't worry, I go back home now. I will take care about the company. Take your time. We will see each other. And then I got off the room and the whole family was standing there and watching at me. And I was like making two steps, stumble fall down crying. I didn't even want to cry, but you know, sometimes you don't, you don't have your feelings like, normally you can control them. In this situation, I wasn't able to control my feelings. Well, like I went down and that's it for, I don't know, two or three minutes. And they got me off again. Like everybody was there. They were so nice and kind. Even the nurses in the hospital, they start crying because they felt so sorry for what happened. And German tourists coming to Canada and something like this happened to them. Even like police officers, they start crying. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. 
Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. As the RCMP continued to investigate, officers spoke with Horst's wife, this time with a translator. Staff Sergeant Daryl Williams is the team commander for one of eight homicide teams in Alberta. But when the shooting happened, he was in charge of the Serious Crime Branch General Investigation Section that was based out of Airdrie. She told me, you know, she's traumatized. She couldn't recall seeing anybody. And she, she second-guessed, you know, even the description of the vehicle. But being in a, in a foreign country where your husband is just injured to a, you know, to a state that you don't know, she wanted to provide and wanted to be helpful as best as she can, with the caveat that my information, I don't know if it's going to be any good. RCMP Constable J.P. Michaud became the primary investigator assigned to the case. It came back as a, uh, like a black, boxy, dirty vehicle. Well, is it really black or was it dark blue or dark green or perhaps a totally different, different color? Uh, again, it's very difficult to achieve that balance where you can only go with what you know while keeping in the back of your mind that perhaps all of the details that were provided were unreliable. With that description in mind, possible suspects were identified. Just one day after German tourist Horst Stewen was shot, police made an arrest. The description of the vehicle was a black vehicle. And some of the information that the investigators had at the time led to a black vehicle, an arrest. And uh, some of those people were, in, were involved in other crimes, but not involved with the shooting incident. So over the course of several days, they were cleared of the shooting incident. The investigation was back at square one. The problem was the shooting happened in a remote location. Outside of the victim's family, and the suspect vehicle, there was nobody there. There was nobody there to witness that, that stretch of highway. There's no stores. There's really no residences close by that we can get video surveillance. There was no, it happened so quick in a stretch of highway where when we sent teams of investigators twice that are specialized in the recovery of evidence and searches, that there was, there was nothing. Constable Michaud said there was no real crime scene, which created a lot of challenges for investigators. The only evidence of a bullet that we had came from the driver's side window. So the bullet went through the window and went into the victim's uh, head. So from the window itself, we, we liaised with our forensic lab. They weren't it wasn't useful to us. They weren't able to tell us what sort of caliber, what sort of firearm was used. 
the bullet fragments that were into the victim's head, that was challenging because they wouldn't operate on him in Canada because it was too it was too risky. So we had we had no fragments to look at. We had no gun to look at. So it was a challenging environment. We had no idea. And they also had no clear motive. The first one was maybe there's something that we don't know about this family in Germany because we had nothing about them on our on our system. We had no idea who they were. So the first thought was perhaps there's something about this family that followed them to Canada. So we got in touch with our liaison officer in Germany to liaise with the local authorities and do all the checks about this family and who they were. And we were able to rule that out pretty quickly. This is a family that had no police involvement whatsoever and there was no reason to believe that anything that would have happened in Germany would have followed them in Canada. Next, police retraced the family's steps during their time in Canada. Perhaps something happened during their trip, during their travels, you know, that same morning or the day before that they got followed, maybe an altercation at the campground, perhaps they you know, they had an altercation at the gas station that some, somebody didn't react well to it and decided to follow them and it just escalated from there. So we had an investigative team that was assigned to just tracking their whereabouts for the, uh, the past few days, uh, trying to track down where they were, who they were with, get as much video as we could to track where they were and what they were doing. And after a certain amount of time, we were able to rule that out as well. Within days of the shooting, Staff Sergeant Williams said the investigation reached a standstill. The primary, JP and myself, walked the highway where the incident happened. And I remember looking at, at JP and saying, we got nothing. Like, we have nothing right now. We're starting from zero. We were preparing for a long process. We were preparing uh, potentially for an undercover operation involving undercover operators to, to target select certain individuals. Investigators were at a loss. There was really only one possible motive for police to consider. The only theory that we had left is that it was a case of mistaken identity. We had nothing else to go on. And the issue with the mistaken identity is that, like, where do you start? Like, what, what do you go after? Good evening, thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with a story that has captured international headlines. A tourist from Germany shot while traveling west of Calgary. Well, tonight, police say they now believe at least two people were involved in the shooting. Here's Nancy Hicks. This is the location where the shooting took place, just as they crossed the crest of the curve, headed that direction. For two weeks, police have tried to solve the shooting of a German tourist, but so far no charges have been laid and police still aren't sure what it was all over. Still being looked at, we don't have, we haven't unearthed anything in the investigation that um, suggests there was a conflict that took place leading up to um, the shooting. So all investigational avenues are still open. However, there's nothing to signify or to, to point us solidly in that direction at this point. 
Police believe there were at least two people involved in the shooting, with the shot being fired from the passenger side of the offending vehicle, hitting the tourist who was driving a black Dodge Durango like this one. Both vehicles were traveling eastbound on Highway 1A. We appreciate the international interest on it. Um, we, we all know that Canada is a beautiful place to come and visit, and we, we hate to see people who are guests in our country have ill things happen to them, um, just like we hate to see ill things happen to our own citizens. So, yeah, it's, it's important to us, and we're going to do our best to investigate it thoroughly. In the meantime, Horst Stewen was in hospital clinging to life. Nearly two weeks after he was shot, he was flown back to Germany for further treatment. That's when he was reunited with his son, Daniel. So they had a special ambulant airplane from Germany, which flew over from Munich to pick him up. And um, we arranged that my mom could go back from Calgary. He recognized us. So he, he knew that I'm like his son. He couldn't say like, hello, my son, nice to see you. But he, he recognized me. When we wanted to take him off the hospital, we had to put him in a wheelchair and going with him around and only like sign speak speech was the only thing we could like consider what he wants to have like are you thirsty do you want something to eat and he was like no yes no at that point his prognosis was still uncertain so the bullet went into his head and it got stopped by his brain you know so it's somewhere in his brain it stopped and then the doctors in Germany, they said they will do another surgery. So now they can see which parts of the brain are dead and where pieces of the bullet are. They don't want foreign material in his head and they don't wanted to remove the, the dead pieces of his brain. And that was, that was what they did in Germany. And they even said like what the doctors over here in Calgary did was an awesome job. Like German hospitals couldn't do that because we're not used to shooting uh, wounds or stuff like this. Uh, in Germany, the ambulances, the, the hospitals, they're not used to, to stuff like this because they said if something like this would happen in Germany, um, they don't know if they could react as good as the, the people over here in Canada did. But like the injury then they did after it. Uh, of course, like there were specialists in Germany, there focused on stuff like this, brain injuries, so they removed all that stuff. A few months later, in May of 2019, Staff Sergeant Daryl Williams flew to Germany. Traveled to Frankfurt and then took a, a vehicle and drove to uh, Detmold, Germany. And that's where I met with the Crown and eventually met with the local authorities, the police that were going to be conducting the interview. He met with the family and was surprised by what he saw. I did not expect him to walk into the police station, with, with, obviously with, with assistance, but he was happy. He was uh, a smile on his face. He can't remember anything in detail about um, after the incident. Back in Canada, following weeks of investigators knocking on doors in rural Alberta, there was finally a break in the case. Constable Michaud said they were given a name of a possible witness, someone believed to be in the offending car when the shooting happened. The passenger in the vehicle had a warrant for their arrest. 
that we could act on. So that's an opportunity for us to lawfully arrest that person. And that person had to be held for a, uh, a bail hearing. So it was an opportunity for us to uh, interview that person. That's where the case starting to unfold. I can tell you, because I've watched the interview and I watched the, the, the recording, you, you could tell how remorseful that, that, that person was. And it was a, it was a difficult interview. It was, it was difficult, it was challenging for the interviewers to gain the trust and the cooperation of that person, but it was also difficult for that person to tell the truth about what happened. This is when police learned the suspect vehicle was red, not black. We expected, you know, this, this was traumatic. There could be a discrepancy between the witness account and what it actually is, but it ended up being completely, completely different. Constable Michaud said this passenger also identified other suspects to interview. He provided names of other people who were in the car when the shooting happened, which would hopefully bring them closer to the identity of the shooter. The driver of the vehicle, we arrested him. And again, the interviewers were the right people, right people for the job. They were able to gain the cooperation and the trust of that person, and then they agreed to cooperate with us. So not only they told us uh, what happened, who was there, and why, but they also agreed to take us to the firearm that had been used. We had no idea what type of weapon had been used. This was a major development in the case. Investigators now had the name of the suspected shooter, and Staff Sergeant Williams said they also had a witness willing to help police recover the gun. The biggest concern for us is making sure, you know, everybody's safe and members are going to be safe. Everybody gets to go home at night. And also the people that we're dealing with that, you know, if we are going to be arresting or engaging that uh, they're safe as well, because at the time we had an unknown offender with a firearm that was still active. And uh, we didn't have a firearm, so. In a discreet way, we had unmarked vehicles, but I would, wouldn't be comfortable with just sending people out to go recover a weapon, not knowing if it was going to be an ambush at the back, at the back end or, or what we were dealing with. So we, we did uh, follow that vehicle. We had three members that were armed. And it was only at that stage that we were told uh, the shooter is walking. He was actually walking on the road and was taking a, an adjacent turn from where we just passed. And so uh, I was driving, uh, JP was my passenger, and I had Walter and other members in the back. And we turned around, and as I turned around, I, I, I caught a glimpse of, of uh, the subject getting into a passenger side of a minivan. Police said it all unfolded very quickly and had no idea if the suspect was armed. Not expected at all. Like we weren't, we weren't ready for that. And it just goes to show to expect the unexpected. It was a high risk situation. The individual was taken down at gunpoint. The person accused of shooting German tourist Horst Stuen was a teenager. Honestly, the, the, uh, it's vivid in my mind in terms of what happened, but the biggest thing for me is, is uh, it was just a boy. He was just a child. And when, when he came out of the van, 
it was apparent um, he was a s small stature and, and you know, for being 16, he, he, for me, he, was, he looked like a child. And, and it was almost to the point where you second guess, I, got, I have my gun out on a person who, um, you know, he's, he's prone and out on the ground, but uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom, uh, you know, having to engage if he did pull a gun out. And luckily he didn't. And the gun ended up, after the incident, ended up being buried on the rural property with several inches underground and the driver was able to bring a few investigators there and recover the firearm which was still which was still loaded but it was buried and it was a modified uh, 22 that had been cut off the barrel had been cut off and there was several modifications to it but we're we're confident based on the uh, the account of the driver but also the statements from the other passengers in the vehicle that it was the right firearm. The manhunt was finally over. However, the motive wasn't revealed until nearly a year after the shooting. The trial got underway in the summer of 2019. Dane Rolf became the primary prosecutor assigned to the case. He said the youth was originally charged with attempted murder. Attempted murder wasn't something that we thought we had a reasonable likelihood of conviction on. Uh, the, proving the intent to attempt to murder was just not there in the circumstances. Um, the young offender in the back seat, quite intoxicated, um, shooting at this vehicle, driving by at that speed, proving that they were intending to kill anyone was going to be hard. So um, that's something that we didn't persist with. In the end, the accused stood trial for a handful of lesser offenses. It was the aggravated assault, assault with a weapon, and then the main charges were discharging a firearm at a place, a, a motor vehicle. Um, recklessly discharging a firearm into a motor vehicle was the main charge. The teenager's identity is protected under the Canadian Youth Criminal Justice Act. And it's recognizing that they are young, that they have a lower mental development, low, lower moral blameworthiness, and uh, they have a lot of years to develop and improve and um, become, you know, a law-abiding citizen. And publishing their names in a criminal case, especially a high-profile criminal case, could really destroy their life going forward, um, having their names in the media, on the internet. So that's something that the courts try to protect and help these young offenders move on in life. During the trial, the prosecution outlined its theory that Horst Stewen was shot over a case of mistaken identity. That morning, the, the young offender had been drinking a lot of alcohol and doing meth with the other three individuals. And they decided to go for a, dr a drive. He was behind the driver in the back seat. The driver saw the the German family in their black Dodge Durango. They had rented that out for the trip. The driver of the red hatchback seemed to recognize the Dodge Durango as a vehicle that they, a vehicle that he had seen before. And he seemed to think that someone may be driving in there that he doesn't like. The evidence led to the belief that the driver told the young offender in the backseat to shoot at the vehicle. 
So they drove up, overtook the vehicle, and the young offender took the rifle and pointed out the back passenger window and shot at the black Dodge Durango. It hit the driver's window, it shattered the window. That caused the bullet to break up into fragments, which then hit the side of Mr. Stewin's face or head, and that penetrated his brain. Um, obviously, he collapsed onto the steering wheel straight away. His vehicle came off the road and into a field coming to, to a stop, basically hitting a tree and came to a stop. It was kind of a one in a million shot. The uh, offending vehicle driving by at 100 kilometers an hour on a main highway, hitting the other vehicle driver in the head. Rolf said there were some major hurdles for the prosecution to overcome as the trial unfolded. The first challenge is they were all drinking alcohol that morning. They were all, to some degree, doing meth. So their memories were at issue. The reliability of their memory was a big issue in court. Then there was an issue with the witnesses' willingness to testify. They were all friends in the vehicle. So I'm sure in the backs of their minds um, at trial, they're, they're thinking, I don't want to be a rat. The reluctance of one of the key Crown witnesses um, who was sitting in the back of the vehicle, the back seat, she had the best view of what happened because the offender reached across her to shoot out the window. And she was probably the most least the least intoxicated as well. So she had the best memory, she had the best vantage point, but she was the most reluctant at trial in terms of wanting to tell the Crown and the court what happened to answer questions. She blatantly told the court that she wants to leave and she doesn't want to answer any more questions. And she almost had one foot off the, the stand to leave. And it took some convincing to get her to stay court heard the three witnesses who were in the car when the shot was fired changed their stories several times on the stand. They were easily persuaded by defense to, to, to agree with what defense was putting to them. So again, two of the witnesses would say to, to, meet, to the Crown and the court one thing, and then when defense cross-examined them, they would backtrack completely and do a 180 and say, no, maybe I, I didn't see him hold the gun or the rifle, and maybe I can't remember anything at all. And that was a big 180. So on two occasions, the Crown had to then re-examine the witness and, and ask them, why have you said two different things to the Crown and defense? Which one's the truth? And both of them said, no, what I told the Crown is the truth. Uh, the defense just kept asking the same questions and I felt pressured just to agree with them. And they just felt that pressure from defense questioning that they just kind of caved in. An alleged confession made by the accused through Facebook Messenger became key evidence in this case. This was seven hours after the incident at night, 7.30 p.m. that night. He just started messaging the witness. They were damning messages. They. If the Crown could prove that they came from the offender, that was the best piece of evidence in the trial, really, because it said that he shot the man, that the police are looking for him. He posted news articles of the investigation and said, they're looking for me. 
the offender said it was a wrong hit. He said that they've got the wrong vehicle, they've got a black vehicle, it was a red vehicle. So he's saying things that only someone that did it would know or someone that was in that vehicle would know. The youth's defense lawyer, Balfour Durr, argued there was no way to prove the accused was the one who fired the shot. The witnesses against my client, all of them in that car, um, had been drinking, had been taking drugs, every one of them. These people had basically been on a 24-hour bender of alcohol and drugs. It's, um, the amount they had consumed would, um, would stagger, literally and figuratively, most of us. Hard to believe that their evidence could be reliable. Dane Rolfe said at the end of the trial, the fate of the teenager accused of the crime was in the hands of a judge. And so the judge um, wrote a very thorough decision. Um, even on the witnesses' evidence alone, he would convict. And then he also had the Facebook messages, separate, separate piece of evidence that corroborates to make the case even stronger. So in the end, it was a very strong case. In the end, he was found not guilty of attempted murder, but guilty of aggravated assault and a number of other uh, firearms offenses. During sentencing, it was revealed in court that the teenager was from the Stony Nakoda First Nation. Highway 1A cuts through Stony Nakoda land if you're headed towards Calgary. He had grown up in a, a troubled family. There was drugs in, in the, within the family, drug abuse. He had some developmental issues that were identified in the reports. His functioning age was lower than his actual age. He was 16 years old at the time of the offence, but his functioning age was much lower, and the reports fleshed that out. So that's important information for a judge to know that this offender committed the offence when his actual functioning mental age is much lower than his actual age. It gives you more understanding about how this occurred and and maybe why um, he just certainly wasn't equipped with the mental capacity to make you know, wise decisions. Rolf said in this case, the prosecution and defense made a joint submission for a proposed sentence. By the time sentencing came round, he had served his sentence. And so he got these 21 months jail that he had served. And there was also another 15 months of probation that he was sentenced to as well. This case is memorable because of how tragic it was, and, and it's memorable because of the, the bad luck for the victim involved here. The, the chances of being shot with a, a single shot 22 from a moving vehicle to another moving vehicle is astronomical, number one, but it, it was so tragic for that person Thousands of miles away from the Calgary courtroom, Horst Stewen and his family were updated on the outcome of the trial. Daniel told me the family doesn't hold bad feelings or bitterness towards the young person, but said they hope he gets the support he needs to lead a productive life. The life of my dad, it's as it's now. So even if they put him into jail for 100 years, won't change anything for him. 
So the situation we have to deal with now is the same if he's in jail or not. For my mom, she lost her husband, she knew. And like my dad, he lost his life, he knew. And uh, like going on holidays, like they loved to go on the North Sea side to like we have some islands over there where you can make like vacation. They love to bike riding. My dad isn't able to riding a bike anymore. So my mom and dad, they go there now. And like my mom is going on her own and my dad stays at home because he can't ride a bike. So like their life changed the most. As I worked on this episode, it struck me how easily this could have been a homicide case had that one in a million shot gone a millimeter or two in another direction. Learning to move, to speak, to eat, uh, changing his clothes on his own and stuff like this, because in the beginning he wasn't able to shower on his own, he wasn't able to change his clothes, he wasn't able to drink, to whatever. Everything was like gone from that moment. Like he wasn't able to speak English and even his German is like, if you know him, you can figure out what he wants. But for a normal, normal person who's able to speak German and English, like do a normal translation, it wasn't that easy. Horst also lost use of his right side. Through hard work and physical therapy, he learned to walk again. But there are still challenges. There are some times where he's like frustrated, where he's sad, where he's mad, where he's angry. He, he trained his signature for, I don't know, he made like millions of signatures at home. So he wants his old signature back, so he trained with his left hand. He's very stubborn and motivated, and that's why he's still sitting here. At least the German doctors and the Canadian doctors said if he wasn't in that good condition as he was, because he was always very sporty, very muscular and stuff, and um, if he wasn't in that condition, he wouldn't make it alive. Horst Stewin's recovery is astonishing. Four years after being shot, he returned to Canada on a special vacation with his son. That's when I met and interviewed them both. I spoke with Horst as Daniel translated. So he said he doesn't remember anything and it's for him it's a good thing that he doesn't remember the details of what happened and how he got out of the car and how he got into the helicopter and stuff like this. He's happy that he doesn't know it. The day that happened to him, it felt like hell. Or from that point on, it was like hell for him. And he couldn't even hardly remember who was there at the hospital and stuff like this. Because he said when he had those rehabs and went to hospitals and stuff like this, he had the chance to meet a lot of people who had strokes and uh, quite similar things that happened to him. And he said a lot of them were like, they give up and they're like dealing with their life like it is, like I can't move anymore, I can't talk anymore. It is like it is now, so that's it, I'm done. And he's like, they should do something and keep themselves up and do some sports. He's going to the forest, which is right behind his house in Germany, and walks lots of kilometers and doing some sport and stuff, which keeps him up. And he couldn't have been like this today if he didn't do that. As Horst laid in a hospital bed all those years ago, he never thought he would experience the freedom of riding a horse again. 
After four years of hard work and perseverance, the family shared a video with me of horse riding through the Canadian countryside. Tschüss, Papa. Viel Spaß. Bye bye. Horse Stewen overcame the odds and is one of the most inspiring people I've met. Thank you to Daniel and Horst for allowing me to share their story. This was the first and only interview they've ever done with a journalist. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the VP of Network Content, Production and Distribution and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? (laughs) Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.